Father in heaven, awesome God, you are greater than our comprehension, greater than our imagination, yet through Jesus, we know the intimacy of your vast, your vast, wonderful, immeasurable love. We gather to worship you this Sabbath day with thanksgiving, with praise, with song, we ask that you help us to speak your praises. We know that you will speak to us through your word and through that still small voice that gives us direction and peace and hope in our hearts amid the storms of life, your Holy Spirit. We know that you are God. We place our lives anew into your service. May our labor increase the goodness in your kingdom, help us provide hope, peace, joy, and love where they are needed. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that surrounds and indwells us, indwells this congregation, your children. And we remember the words that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, do you know that Jesus asked a lot of questions? In the four Gospels, Jesus is asked a question 183 times. On the other hand, the number of questions that he asks is much more. He asks 307 questions. You would think that the people would ask Jesus a lot more questions than he would have asked of them. But even more interesting is the number of questions that Jesus directly answered. In other words, somebody asks you a question and you give a straight answer. Depending upon which scholar does the counting, of the 183 questions he responded to, only between three to eight of them did he respond to directly. Now that is interesting. Jesus rarely answered questions directly. Rather, he preferred to answer with a question. He wasn't too keen about answering questions directly. And if we take the higher count of eight direct answered questions, then we can say that Jesus almost 40, answered questions with a question almost 40 times as much as answering directly. Do you know that the first sentences of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels are questions? <laughs> Mary and Joseph had lost track of their 12-year-old son. Okay? And after a frantic search, they found him. And what did Jesus say when his parents found him in the temple? He asked them a question. Why are you looking for me? Don't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Luke chapter 2, verse 49. And then, at the end of his life, according to Mark and Matthew, his last words while hanging on the cross were another question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 15, 34. And in between those two questions during his life, Jesus routinely asked questions, all kinds of questions. Some questions were straightforward and simple. Others were obviously rhetorical. For example, who among you can add a single moment to your life by worrying? Other questions Jesus asked were probing questions, often very difficult to answer. Sometimes the questions were effectively challenges to whomever he was speaking to. But who do you say that I am? Why don't you understand what I'm saying? Where is your faith? Why could you not watch with me for one hour? And sometimes the question Jesus asked probably didn't make much sense to the person he was speaking to. For instance, when Peter was walking on the water and eventually began to sink, Jesus said, you man of weak faith, why did you have doubts? Uh, because I was walking on the water. 
Another time, a blind blind man cried out to Jesus as Jesus passed by on the way to Jericho. Jesus responded to the man who cried out, What do you want me to do for you? Now that was confusing. The guy was blind. Jesus knew that what the blind guy wanted, he wanted to have his sight restored. This is the way Jesus interacted with people. He questioned them. One question Jesus often asked in a variety of settings was, what are you looking for? Other times he might ask, who are you looking for? Of course, Jesus knew the obvious answer to his questions, but he wasn't looking for an obvious answer. Rather, he asked questions in a probing manner, looking for an answer deeper than the obvious. Easy, obvious answers have a sense of finality. Jesus asked questions, and he answered questions with questions that were an invitation for further reflection. Many of the time, or most of the time, answers, they close a thought, right? But questions can open you up to deeper thought. The questions Jesus asked had a lot in common with one of his favorite teaching subjects or his tools, parables, When Jesus used either tool, questions or parables, he was communicating indirectly. His listeners had to do some thinking, some analysis. His goal when asking questions or when teaching with parables was the same. It was not to communicate knowledge, rather it was to elicit understanding. Information was not the primary goal. Transformation was his primary goal for his listeners. Jesus certainly understood human nature. He talked a lot about our emotions, the way we think. The longest written discourse we have with, from him about any emotion is found in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6 when he taught his followers about worry. Worry. Now just imagine that. It's amusing that psychologists today think worry is a modern emotion. That we live in an age of anxiety. Really? I've got news for them. Worry is not a new problem. And prescription antidepressant drugs are not the answer to overcoming worry. Jesus knew that worry is an unwelcome guest within our hearts and minds. He knew that worry is unhealthy. Jesus taught us not to worry. As Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, he said, no fewer than three times, do not worry directly. It was a refrain that he used to emphasize a central point. His repetition helps us to remember 
Worry is so persistent and insidious that the injunction from Jesus, do not worry, needed to be persistent. It's part of what humanity is. Jesus knows us so well. He knew that our worries are not easily dismissed. For some of us, when we're told not to worry, that's when we, wor worry, when we worry more, right? When somebody tells us not to worry, then we start worrying even more. But the real power in the words of Jesus in Matthew did not come from his repeated injunction, do not worry. Rather, he asked five rhetorical questions, rapid fire, quick succession, and they should really grab your attention. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. Question number one. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow, store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they, than they are? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers grow? They don't labor or spin. If God clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus used rhetorical questions more to produce an effect than to get an answer. He steered his listeners to an understanding about worry that should be obvious. Do you think? The cumulative effort of his questions is powerful. He challenged the validity of worry. Jesus drew his listeners into a dialogue about worry. He painted a beautiful scene of flowers in a field. There was no gardener, no one watered the flowers, no one cultivated them, yet God cared for them and supplied all that was needed. The result was that the flowers were sprinkled across the field, dancing in the gentle breeze, growing and content. It was beautiful, the picture that Jesus painted. And then Jesus asked, in effect, since God cares for them so wonderfully, don't you think he, you can trust God that he will take care of you? Let's move on to another question asked at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. The story is in Luke chapter 7. While Jesus was eating dinner at this home, a woman who is described only as a sinner came in and fell at the feet of Jesus. She was full of remorse, and her tears were enough to wet the feet of Jesus. She let her hair down, and she used her hair to wipe his feet dry. Well, first, it was culturally, culturally <laughs> improper for her to let her hair down. 
And second, she used her hair in a provocative manner as far as the culturally correct guests at the dinner were concerned. Imagine the scene. She wiped his feet with her hair. She kissed his feet, and then she placed perfume on his feet. It was a scandal for her just to even be there at that dinner, but what she did made it doubly scandalous. The Pharisees and the culturally correct people would have nothing to do with that woman. Those self-righteous people acted as if she, a known sinner, didn't even exist. Simon might have assumed that Jesus must have known she was a sinner. Maybe Simon thought that Jesus didn't know that this woman was a sinner. I don't know. If Jesus had known what she was, in Simon's mind, he would not have treated her, or he would have treated her as invisible too. But then, then Jesus looked at Simon, and he asked Simon a question. Do you see this woman? In that setting, Jesus asked a question that was extremely probing. It was a challenge question. Do you see this woman? The woman wasn't right in front of everyone at the dinner table that day. Yet, the guests did not see the woman. Oh, they knew her presence had crashed the dinner party but they did not really see the woman. They only saw a body that had been labeled by their preconceptions as a vile sinner. Jesus knew she was a sinner. Jesus also knew that Simon did not consider her as a human, human being whom he could have, a, whom he could relate to. Jesus knew that Simon had no compassion for the woman. Simon only saw what the woman did. Jesus, on the other hand, did not focus on what the woman did. He didn't focus on what sort of woman she was. Rather, he saw her as a person. The question that Jesus asked, do you see this woman, challenged all those present that evening to see her humanity. Another time Jesus was on a boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was in the stern of the boat sleeping, catching up on some sleep time. But there was a storm. The sea was getting rough. The boat was taking on water. The disciples in a panic awakened Jesus, and they asked, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Jesus first responded by taking care of business. We read in Scripture that he calmed the wind and the waves, and then he turned to his disciples, and he asked them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? Hmm. A couple of questions that sound like they are questions of exasperation. Why are you so timid? 
How is it that you have no faith? His questions make me wonder what the disciples must have been thinking in response to his questions. Can you picture Peter thinking to himself, where is my faith? Seriously? My faith is being tossed around by a violent storm that is about to sink us. Well, there are other times when Jesus responded with questions of exasperation. One good example is when Peter stepped out of a boat to to join Jesus as Jesus was walking on the water. The story is in Matthew chapter 14. The, The disciples were sent ahead out onto the lake. And once they were out there, they saw a figure walking on the water at a distance. And Peter called out, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And Jesus responded, come over to me. And with faith, Peter stepped onto the water. He was headed toward Jesus. But then like a young child on his first bike ride, without training wheels, he began to think, I can't be doing this. Peter looked out at the wind and the waves, and he began to sink. And he called out for help. Jesus stretched out his hand and pulled him up, and he asked Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It was another response from Peter, where I don't think Peter was being a smart aleck. No, I don't think Peter had a smart aleck response at all to that question of exasperation. But my question is, do you think at times Jesus was impatient with his disciples? It certainly seems that way. If I tell Laura that I have faith in her, what do I mean? I mean a lot of things. (laughs) I mean that I trust her. I rely on her, I love her, I depend on her. Faith is the language of relationship. Faith is living, it's dynamic. Faith is trust in action. With Jesus, when his disciples lacked faith, Jesus was disappointed because it was personal. Jesus felt that he had earned the trust of his disciples. He was probably fairly frustrated by their lack of faith at times. I believe that he was even hurt by it. He responded with frustration because it was personal. Perhaps Jesus was thinking to himself, after all we've done together... After all the deep abiding love I've shown you, after all the miracles and promises I've fulfilled, after all that, and you still don't trust me, where is your faith? The word belief is often used used as a synonym for faith. Sometimes that's okay. Belief is synonymous with faith. But there is a very important difference 
quite significant. Belief is a possession. Faith, however, isn't something you have. Faith is something you do. I don't know if there were, there's a word in Spanish yet for faithing, but I have heard some of my friends in the Philippines tell me that they are faithing. They turn our English word faith, a noun, into a verb. Theologically, having faith is something that we do. It's grammatically incorrect in English to say, I faith sometimes. Or, I'm faithing more and more as I mature in Christ. But theologically, it is correct to think that way. So allow me to damage the English language for a moment and use faith as if it's a verb. As Peter walked on the water toward Jesus, he faithed quite well for a while until fear crept in and took over. As Peter faithed less and less, he sank more and more. But even when his fear, with his fear, he was still able to faith a little. He was capable of some trust, even if it wasn't complete trust. He was able to faith long enough and well enough to cry out, Lord, save me. But he still sank because he faithed intermittently. But Jesus saved him anyway, despite his fickle faithing. Jesus certainly doesn't expect his followers to trust that he will calm every storm we face in our lives. We all face storms. Sometimes we face literal storms. Other times we face storms of rejection, violence, storms of inner turmoil, Jesus does not promise to keep the storms out of our lives. However, God has taught us what his expectation is for our expectations through the words of the Apostle Paul. The ex expectations of God for our expectations. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Powerful expectation. Jesus wants us to live lives of faith. Theologically, faith is an action word that allows us to hold on to our love of God. Whatever comes along in life, God will remain. He will never let go of us. We are secure in His saving grace. Faith is more than believing without proof. Faith is living your trust without reservation. Next week, I plan Right now, I plan to look at more of these remarkable questions that Jesus asked.
Until then, amen. Hallelujah. Thank you.